Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 16, Massacre of the Innocents. We last left off with the German army in full retreat following the Allies' counterattack along the Marne River. Exhaustion and ill supply proved to be the trigger pull for the German defeat, as the French and British troops, with their backs to the wall, fought with greater tenacity and sense of self-preservation. The setback at the Marne had left the German war effort in question. Helmuth von Moltke was unable to achieve his knockout blow against Joseph Joff's forces, and with the Russian war machine getting into high gear, it meant the German position was now more precarious than before. Because of the Marne failure, Moltke was removed from command and replaced by Erich von Falkenhayn. But in order to keep the German public in Vienna from uncovering the severity of the situation, Moltke would remain at command headquarters in a fictitious role until November. Despite the Allied victory, Joffre and Sir John French were not prepared to rest on their laurels, and on September the 13th would attack along the Assane River, which is where we will pick up our narrative from today. Keeping with what will be a frequent accompaniment, I have uploaded another of my crudely made maps to the Great War Podcast.podbean.com so we can all have a better understanding of the geography which we will be talking about today. Following the retreat from the Marne, there was an undeniable sense of gloom surrounding the OHL, the German High Command Headquarters. The weather had turned from clear summer skies to sleet and fog, making conditions miserable for both Allied and German armies. Prior to his dismissal, Moltke was able to fully assess the damage caused by the Allied attack. His units had been forced all the way back to the northern bank of the Assane, a deep, wide river running east-west before dipping southward just east of Verdun, and his men were now some 200 kilometers from Paris, when just five days earlier were within 60 kilometers of the French capital. The situation was far from ideal. Moltke allegedly met with the Kaiser and told him that Germany had lost the war, because with the failure of the Schlieffen Plan meant there was very little the OHL could do to help salvage the situation. Simply put, there was no plan B. But a solution slowly came to present itself. When Glock and von Bülow led their first and second armies past the Assane, they had taken up position in a stretch of territory in the Champagne region of France, between the towns of Verdun, Reims, and Noyon. Unsure of what to do next, Moltke's final act as overall commander was to tell his generals to dig in, fortify, and defend the lines. This order would become one of the most important in the entire war, as it initiated the program of trench building, which will become the MO of both armies in the Western Theater. On September the 14th, just five days after the battles at the Marne, Moltke found himself unemployed, and Falkenhayn was now in charge. Luckily for the Germans, the Allies were facing problems of their own. Despite the hard-fought victories of September 5th and 9th, which Winston Churchill memorialized as a struggle raged on so great a scale, when the slaughter so swift or the stakes so high, the fatigued French and British troops were unable to pursue the retreating Germans. Joseph Joffre argued that the advance must be pursued energetically, leaving the enemy no respite, but he too was quick to note the extremes of what he was asking. The turn for the worse in weather had made mobility difficult, and during the maelstrom of the Marne fighting, several key bridges capable of supporting the necessary materials and manpower had been destroyed. For several days after, the Allied armies took to resupplying, tending the wounded, and when possible, catching some much-needed shut-eye. While the Allies were busy figuring out their next move, Falkenhayn was busy at work, and knew that a second Allied push was just over the horizon. Almost immediately after his appointment, he had begun to peel off divisions from the armies in Lorraine to help reinforce the Champagne line. Following up on Moltke's fortify and defend order, the German infantry were put to the task. Unlike their opponents, the German army held a distinct advantage when it came to fighting from a defensive position. They had been trained more rigorously in the art of entrenchment and fortification, 
and saw it as a crucial component to modern warfare, something which the British and French were slow to recognize. Gluck and von Bülow had chosen their ground wisely. The Champagne region is predominantly flat, with a patchwork of forested areas which made it ideal for grapes and winemaking. The first and second armies had dug in along a 150-meter ridge, the Chemie des Dames, which provided them an unobstructed view of the countryside and a clear line of sight against the oncoming assault. From there, they set up artillery spotters and concealed machine gun nests, and were ready to meet the enemy. Under the cover of darkness, in the early morning of September 13th, the Allied attack came. The British Expeditionary Force, along with desperate Frankies, French 5th, and the Second Army, commanded by the fighting friar, General Eudouard de Castelnau, which was mostly comprised of divisions from Alsace, attempted to pierce the German line along Chemie des Dames. The BEF, having crossed the Assane on makeshift pontoon bridges, found themselves being pulverized as accurate artillery and machine guns chewed through the Allied ranks. The confused nature of the fighting, compounded by poor weather conditions, makes tracking the timeline of the Assane battles difficult as some sectors saw brutal close-quarter contests, including hand-to-hand and bayonet charges. Joffre and Sir John French, still believing in mobility being the key to a breakthrough, continued with numerous attempts to punch a hole in the line. But the German shell proved difficult to crack, and so the remaining BEF and 5th Army forces took up their positions just south of the ridge. A crucial moment in the battle took place on September 17th, when Joffre ordered Castelnau's 2nd Army to attempt to skirt around the German 1st Army positioned north of Noyon. The maneuver was checked by Gluck's men, and the attacking French fell back and dug in, unwilling to give up any territory they had gained. The German first then in turn attempted a similar move by trying to outflank the French line, but that too was repulsed. The Germans again retreated to their line and dug in. From September 17th to the 28th, numerous flanking attempts were made by both armies with neither being able to achieve a breakthrough. As a result, these battles became a series of rolling contests, which slowly began to make their way north, thus stretching the overall length of the front line. Popular memory has named this development the Race for the Sea, but as historian John Keegan writes, a race indeed it was, but for the sea it was not. Neither Falkenhayn nor Joff were hoping to reach the coast before the other. These flanking attempts were made to get behind their opponents' lines, but they quickly found that they were running out of Europe to make that possible. This dance would continue northwest, as the failed attempts would result in the defeated armies digging in and awaiting a counter-response. On September 22nd, it was in Picardy, and the 25th, at Albert, Arras on the 27th. It just kept going up and up and on and on. The significance of these tumbling battles was what they left behind. As efforts failed and the troops dug in, it left in its wake a continuous line of rudimentary trenches, separated by a distinct no-man's land. These trenches were little more than hastily dug ditches, and were not yet the complex system we will see in 1915 or 1918. Although they may not have known it, trench warfare on the Western Front had begun. So if anyone asks you why trenches became so prolific in the First World War, you now have the answer. By the end of September, both Falkenhayn and Joff recognized that the time to achieve a breakthrough was in its twilight. The battle lines along the Assane were beginning to stagnate, and the limits of geography were narrowing it down to the Flanders region of northern Belgium, particularly around the town of Ypres, or as the British troops were crudely nicknamed, Wipers. Ypres was a traditional heart of the Belgian wool manufacturing sector, surrounded by a low-lying country making it perfect for a mobile army to conduct operations. But what brought attention to the Flanders and Ypres region was particularly due to the Belgians themselves. If you'll recall from last day, prior to the Battle at the Marne, Moltke had begun the process of redeploying his armies to the east, assuming that the French and British were already knocked out of the fight. Some of those divisions had been sent to drive out a stubborn Belgian force which had been holed up near Antwerp, 
Well, on October 6th, the Belgian king, Albert I, who was personally in command of the 80,000 troops at Antwerp, decided that the time had come to make a break for it. It was a good decision, too, because the German howitzers, the Big Berthas, which had been used to smash the forts at Liege, were due to arrive at any moment. Albert led the garrison out of Antwerp, and they made their way to the Yezer River, which runs northwest of Ypres, between the port towns of Newport, Dunkirk, and Cali. The five Belgian divisions arriving in that sector helped plug the remaining gap in the now 400-kilometer trench line, running unbroken from the Swiss frontier to the coast of the English Channel. Neither Falkenhayn nor Joff had missed this opportunity. The overall German commander had begun to redeploy his armies, which included the 4th Army under the Duke of Württemberg, who had followed the Belgians from Antwerp, and the 6th Army, originally held at Lorraine. Joff in turn followed suit by sending the BEF to help reinforce the Belgians and a regiment of 1,000 French Marines already in the region. Now I should take a moment to further flesh out what the British Expeditionary Force was, because I did just sort of throw them in without a proper introduction. Put simply, the BEF was the full-time pre-war British Army, composed entirely of volunteers and had a strength of about 120,000 men. It was the brainchild of former Secretary of War Richard Holden, who on the advice of Sir Douglas Haig, believed it was a necessity that Britain have a professional standing army which could be sent to the continent to protect their interests. When the Empire joined the war, Prime Minister Herbert Asquith had agreed to send 100,000 men, but following the battles at the Marne had been forced to send the remaining reserves. By October 14th, at the time of their deployment at Ypres, the BEF had taken 35,000 casualties, so about one-fourth of its total combat strength, and it had only been in France for 60 days. But the decision by its commander, Sir John French, to redeploy north was a practical one. Unlike the French or German army, which was mostly composed of conscripts or part-timers, the BEF were full-time professionals, and as the army's official historian famously remarked, they were the best-trained, best-organized, and best-equipped British army which ever went forth to war. Its ranks were filled with troops who were tight-knit, and as a result had a tendency to fight with more vigor and discipline, an advantage which would prove to be the difference at Ypres. But there was an even more practical reason. By moving the BEF north to Flanders, it allowed for easier resupply coming from Royal Navy vessels at Calais, Dunkirk, and Newport, which by October 20th primarily came in the form of colonial troops from India, but also French units from Senegal. As the front line stretched further north, Jaffa turned the northern sector over to the 9th Army commander, Ferdinand Foch, whose task would be to coordinate French, Belgian, and British forces in the area. Both Foch and Sir French, the BEF commander, shared the same optimism that a breakthrough in Flanders would allow the Allies to punch a hole straight through to Brussels, thus forcing another ripple effect similar to what had happened back at the Marne. But Falkenhayn was not going to befall the same fate as his predecessor. The Germans had been undergoing a build-up of their own. Roughly 200,000 men of the 4th and 6th armies were already in position, but they were about to see an added boost by the arrival of volunteer regiments fresh from Germany. The majority of these units were made up of men who, although of military age, between 19 and 40, had been exempt from service as they pursued their university studies. When the war broke out, they had turned out to volunteer in great numbers, but based on the demands of the war, had yet to be sent to France. When these units arrived to the front, some 80,000 strong, they had received only a month of formal military training, but that did not stop the German people from hailing them as the young heroes of the fatherland. Of those who marched off to France and Belgium in October of 1914 were two notable individuals. Ernst Junger, whose memoir, Storm of Steel, is a personal favorite and a must-read for any history buff, and a young Adolf Hitler, who, although an Austrian, had received permission from the German government because he had been residing in Munich. I am sure Hitler needs no further introduction. The action around Flanders and Ypres erupted on October 13th, with German forces hitting the Belgians near the Yezer and the BEF at Ypres itself. 
The attacking Germans held numerical advantage over the defenders in almost every aspect, a 2-1 margin in manpower and nearly a 10-1 advantage in heavy artillery. The Big Berthas, which had been at Liege and Antwerp, were brought to Ypres and helped pummel not only the Allied lines, but the town itself, reducing it to a near total rubble. Due to the low-lying country and abundance of water so close to the surface, the battlefield soon turned into a muddy quagmire. BEF and Belgian reinforcements were limited, and besides an additional corps of about 2,000 commanded by Douglas Haig, accompanied by Indian and Senegalese troops, there was little Joff, Foch, or French could do, less risking their hold on the line elsewhere. It was the training and professionalism of the BEF which proved to be the fulcrum of the battle. The German opposition, who in addition of the volunteer regiments, was mostly composed of units which had been spared from the fighting at the Marne or Seine. The 4th had been at Antwerp, while the 6th had been at a quiet sector near Lorraine since August, so they were not the battle-hardened cream of the German army which had been so unstoppable at Liege or the frontiers. For three weeks, the Germans would throw everything they had at the besieged allies, and these assaults were conducted with the attackers deploying en masse, similar to the standing formations found in 19th century warfare. The Allies, led by the BEF, made the Germans pay. Rifle discipline and small arms fire was so accurate and synchronized that the attacking Germans mistook it for machine guns, and many attempts to breach the lines were stalled due to panic and confusion. The crescendo rose to a pitch between October 25th and November 10th, as both sides captured numerous ridges which would be the sites of bloody fighting over the next four years. The Germans taking the heights along Menin Road and Polygon Wood, while well, the Allies took the Messane, in a high ground a few kilometers southwest of Passchendaele. By November 13th, the fighting had begun to sputter out. Casualties would tell the full story. The British Expeditionary Force would lose 55,500 killed, wounded, or missing, bringing their total to 95,000 since the original force of 100,000 had arrived in France back in early August. Simply put, the BEF, or rather the full-time regular British Army, had been decimated. The Belgians would lose 22,000, while the French an additional 70,000. But the Germans suffered greatly as well, roughly 135,000 since October 13th. But the Ypres slaughter took on a different meaning for the German forces involved. Beginning on October 21st, Falkenhayn had ordered the Volunteer Corps, along with units from the 4th and 6th Armies, to attack northeast of Ypres, near the town of Langemark. At Langemark, it was Douglas Haig's newly arrived 1st Corps, with a mismatch of Belgian and Indian troops, who managed to prevent a breakthrough. For the 80,000 volunteer soldiers, 50,000 became casualties by October 24th, in what has been commemorated in Germany as the Massacre of the Innocents, marking a break where the war lost all romantic notion of danger and adventure. I mention this because if you go to the Great War Podcast at podbean.com, I've uploaded a couple of photographs from when I visited the Langemark German Cemetery back in 2011, which features a mass grave commemorating some 20,000 names. Unfortunately, Adolf Hitler, or rather Adolf Schickelgruber, is not among them. I have also decided to use more pictures from my recent battlefield trips wherever possible, because it sure is a nice break from the old black and white images we're so used to seeing. By the end of November, the lines at Ypres would come to take on their characteristic C-shaped bulge, which will remain the site of brutal fighting throughout the war, as the Allies and Germans would continue to struggle for the outlying townships and surrounding high ground. In 1915, the first deployment of chlorine gas came at the Ypres salient, while well, the battles around Passchendaele in 1917 have come to personify the life-and-death struggle in the mud and misery of the Western Front. The Battle of October-November 1914 is commonly referred to as First Ypres, and for the remainder of the war, Ypres would become symbolic for the determination and bravery of the BEF soldiers in the face of such overwhelming odds. But what brought the fighting to a sputtering close that November had little to do with casualties or the brutal nature of the conflict, but had everything to do with an ammunition shortage, something neither the Allies nor Germans had expected. 
In August, the armies of Europe had calculated their stockpile of shells based on the expenditures of the Russo-Japanese War. Although they had brought more than what they had originally thought was necessary, the tenacity of the fighting and importance of artillery in the fields of Flanders, Artois, and Champagne had resulted in their supplies running dangerously low. Even the British Expeditionary Force, which lacked the heavy artillery pieces of the French and Germans, had calculated their own ammunition supply on their most recent conflict, which was not the Russo-Japanese War, but the Boer War fought in South Africa from 1899 to 1902. Every belligerent was short on bullets, and if that was not bad enough, the campaigning season was coming to a close, as the temperature dropped and the frost settled in. There would be no breakthrough in 1914, which meant the war would not be over by Christmas. But optimism remained high, as plans for a spring offensive in 1915 began to be drawn up almost immediately. In the meantime, the soldiers in the Western Front trenches would have to settle in for the winter. Throughout the cold months, the rudimentary trenches became more complex, as they were dug wider, deeper, and fortified with wooden planks called duckboards, barbed wire, and in some cases concrete. Despite the savage nature of the fighting, little ground was made since the German retreat to the Assane. The belligerents in the Western theater were unprepared for the type of fighting which it brought, and as a result, casualty numbers are hard to place. French and German estimates from August to November are approximately 600,000 each, with anywhere between 117 to 300,000 killed. The BEF, essentially their own separate force, have much more accurate numbers, and by the new year would lose a total of 98,000. Out of the 200,000 Belgian regulars, only 50,000 remained. But as I said at the start of last week, this is just the Western theater. On the Eastern Front, things played out much differently, as the larger geographic space allowed for greater mobility among the German, Austrian, Russian, and Serbian armies. So next week, we'll swing out there and see how things happening in the West were affecting those on the East, and vice versa. So take the week and get situated, and we'll be back with a whole new bunch of names and a whole new set of rivers and ridges to stay on top of. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find Twitter and email information if you wish to get in contact with me. Comments, criticisms, and suggestions are always welcome. If you're interested in helping out The Great War Podcast, you can find us on iTunes and leave a 5-star review, as that will help us stay afloat in the rankings and force me to continue turning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.